Well, I mean, I, I think a low-calorie diet is probably a good thing. Um, I, I think in humans, we don't know, there's no data on what a low-calorie diet does in terms of diseases and uh, longevity, as I said before. Uh, by analogy to rodents, uh, you would think it would be a good thing. On the other hand, uh, if it made you really miserable to eat 1,000 calories a day, uh, and people who are on that diet tend to be cold, they tend to uh, have very low sex drive. They tend to, uh, in some cases, uh, be irritable. And so if you're not happy, then that gets back to what we were saying earlier. You may be undoing some of the good uh, that that diet uh, would otherwise uh, produce. So my feeling is to live sensibly. I mean, the word of advice that I think uh, is good. It's hard to follow, but I think what everybody should do, if everybody could do this, uh, it, it's the best you can do right now, is decide what is your perfect weight, your body weight. What's perfect for you? And I think what most people do is rifle through the past and, and, and decide on you know, when they were most happy uh, with themselves and do everything possible to get to that weight and keep to it. And I think that that would... Uh, uh, necessarily uh, make you healthier, most people healthier than they are now. Uh, beyond that, I, you know, I take a vitamin supplement, a general supplement. Uh, I take vitamin D. Um, I do not take resveratrol, although a lot of people do. Um, and the reason is I'm waiting for a 100% pure and reliable source of it, and then I will take it. Um, and uh, I drink a little wine, and uh, all the data says, again, there's an optimum. I think the data says that too much wine is bad, but no wine is not optimum. The right amount of wine uh, is optimum. There's a center in Louisiana called the Pennington Center that has been uh, doing such studies. It's been a long time since there's been good data on humans, on uh, calorie restriction, and part of the problem has been that uh, humans tend to cheat on the diet, so uh, controlled studies end up not being so controlled. Uh, but recently there have been six-month studies done, and what you can do in six months, you can't ask if it's making people live longer, you can't even ask if it's protecting them against diseases, but you can ask if it's eliciting the kinds of physiological changes that you expect in calorie restriction, which would be a loss of body fat, a lowering of blood glucose, so an anti-diabetic uh, effect, uh, a, a rendering of uh, sensitivity to insulin, the action of insulin. These can all be measured. And six months on calorie restriction in humans does roughly the same thing that it does in mice. Now, just one footnote on uh, one of those studies. So. In rodents, uh, what we knew is that uh, some of these sirtuin activators could activate uh, muscle to process glucose better. And it was doing that, at least in part, by activating uh, the synthesis of mitochondria. These are organelles in cells. They're called the powerhouses of cells that make energy for cells. And by activating mitochondria, uh, you sort of drive metabolism 
and you drive the uptake of glucose from the blood into the muscle and the processing of glucose. So it's a good thing. It's an anti-diabetic thing. And this process is, uh, can be driven by SIRT1, the survival gene in muscle, in rodents. Now, it was done first with resveratrol, but it turns out calorie restriction in rodents does the same thing. You activate the synthesis of mitochondria in muscle, okay, and that makes them more metabolically active, and it's a good thing metabolically. Okay, now to get back to the humans, what they were able to show uh, in this trial is they took uh, punch biopsies of muscle from the people that were on the calorie restriction diet for six months, and what they found in their muscles was an increase in mitochondria and an increase in the levels of the SIRT1 protein. The protein was actually increased uh, in the muscle in response to calorie restriction. So that says that the congruence between uh, uh, mice and humans may be uh, uh, quite profound with regard to calorie restriction. So we can't say any, there's no direct evidence in humans about diseases, certainly not about lifespan, but at least basic physiology uh, uh, looks like it might be similar in humans. So that might uh, make a good prediction about uh, the effects of uh, calorie restriction, but nobody wants to practice calorie restriction because it's, it's so unpleasant. And so what everybody would like is a mimetic, a drug that would elicit at least some of the benefits of calorie restriction. There is a lot of truth to that. It's, it, it applies to almost every species in which it's been studied. It is now in process of being studied in monkeys, which are the closest we have from an evolutionary point of view, a group that's being studied. So far, it looks like they are doing better and staying healthier uh, under caloric restriction. We don't know yet about the length of life because we haven't had the study going on that long but it was justified to now start studying it in human beings. And so there are three universities where caloric restriction is being studied in human beings. Well, too many calories. I mean, there's an appropriate number of calories, but too many calories and obesity. And America is the heaviest nation in the world. Definitely is a disaster. In fact, we're now seeing type 2, which means old age diabetes in 10-year-old children. And that means they're going to have more coronary heart disease, more diabetes, more arthritis, and they're going to die younger. And it could be the first generation that actually lives less long than their parents. You feel stronger and better. Um, we, of course, know that the caloric-restricted diet is going to be very unpalatable for most people. It's too much of a restriction. So what's now being studied are the ingredients, why it happens. And if we can put that into a medicine, we would therefore be able to, so to speak, have our cake and eat it too. And there is a chemical called resveratrol and a series of genes called sirtuins, which may account for caloric restriction. And if so, that's a very important step forward in understanding the basic biology of aging and longevity.
Well, they do have less sexual libido. They may not feel as energetic because they're not getting as much food. Uh, other than that, we don't know of any truly serious consequences, but as I said, it would be much better if we could find the appropriate pharmacological agent or drug that would do the job of caloric restriction without the more unpleasant aspects like having such a restricted diet. Paul, telomerase hit the headlines. However, I think we have to put it into perspective. It is not the fountain of youth. However, it is a significant breakthrough. We have to put it into a much larger perspective. First of all, we know that DNA is sort of like a shoelace. It has plastic tips at the end. Every time a cell reproduces, the tips get shorter and shorter and shorter until finally they fray. And you know that your shoelace without the plastic tips will simply fall apart. That's what happens inside a cell. A cell, for example, your skin cell, will divide about 60 times. That's called the Hayflick limit. Then the cell goes into senescence and eventually dies. So in some sense, every cell has a biological clock. It is doomed to die after about 60 reproductions. However, telomerase can eliminate uh, some of the, the contraction of the chromosomes, and the chromosomes can maintain their length. So at first you may say, aha, we can now defeat the biological clock, but not so fast. First of all, cancer cells also use telomerase. Cancer cells are immortal. Cancer cells are immortal, and that's precisely why they kill you. Why are cancer cells so dangerous? Because they are immortal. They grow and they grow and they grow until they take over huge chunks of your body, meaning that your bodily functions cannot be performed and you die. So we have to make sure that when you hit ordinary cells with telomerase, that you don't also trigger cancer in the process. Now, also you have to realize that genes are also very essential for the aging process. It turns out that we know what aging is Aging is the buildup of error. That's all aging is. The buildup of genetic and cellular error. As cells begin to age, they begin to get sluggish because genetic mistakes start to build up. Now cells, however, have a repair mechanism. They can repair damage to their cells. Otherwise, we would all basically rot uh, very soon after birth. However, even the repair mechanisms eventually get gummed up and then the cell really starts to get old as a consequence. So then the question is, can you accelerate cell repair? That is another branch of gerontology which is being looked at using genes and using chemicals to accelerate the repair mechanisms. For example, if I take any organism on the planet Earth, from yeast cells to spiders, insects, rabbits, dogs, and even monkeys now, and I reduce their caloric intake by 30%, they live 30% longer. In fact, the only organism which has not yet been deliberately tested by scientists are Homo sapiens. All the other species obey this basic rule. You starve them to death, they live longer. This is independent of telomerase. 
This is a function of the wear and tear that we have on the cells. And this is the only known way of actually deliberately extending the lifespan of any organisms almost at will. Now what we want is a genetic way of mimicking this mechanism without having to starve yourself. Because how many people do you know would be willing to starve themselves in order to live 30% longer? Not too many. So then the question is, are there genes that control this process? And the answer is apparently yes. There's something called the sirtuin genes, sir 2 being the most prominent of them. They in turn stimulate certain enzymes, among them resveratrol, which is found in red wine, for example. So this does not mean that drinking red wine or taking telomerase is the fountain of youth. I don't think that anyone has a fountain of youth yet. What I am saying is, we are now finding pieces of the fountain of youth, tantalizing clues that mean that perhaps in the coming decades, we might be able to actually unravel the aging process. We don't have it yet. Don't go out to the drugstore and stock up on these kinds of chemicals and enzymes thinking you're going to live forever. However, it is conceivable that in the coming decades, we'll come very close to finding it. I hate death. More than 150,000 people die on this planet every friggin' day, and some of those people are getting hit by buses or dying of how cute a puppy is or something. But in most cases, their bodies are just succumbing to the dirty work of aging. And I'm tired of it. And I don't want George R. R. Martin to die before he finishes his Game of Thrones series. Obviously, we all have to die eventually. I mean, it's something that we have in common with every other person who has ever lived. But some organisms can live to be very, very, very old, and scientists are beginning to understand better how they do it and what it might take for us to live to be very, very, very old. And I'm not just talking about doing squat thrusts or eating kale or whatever, glass of white wine every day, although those things probably help. I'm talking about discovering how our cells die, why they do it, how our genes make us age, and yes, how our behavior influences our longevity. So I'm like, come on, scientists, make me live forever, please. You and I are just collections of cells, albeit magnificent and really complicated collections that exist as animated blobs for a while, hopefully long enough to reproduce. And when it gets too tough for our cells to keep these masses of cells together, pfft, we die. It happens to the best of us, and also the worst of us, and also everybody in between. For humans, and for most animals, there's a process of aging that happens over the course of our lives, culminating in the buying of the proverbial farm. This process has a lovely little name, it's called senescence. And at an organismal level, we see senescence take place after our bodies reach sexual maturity. After that, we begin to lose the ability to combat physical stress and to maintain homeostasis, the internal balance of all of our organ systems in body fluid concentrations, and most importantly, we start to lose the ability to combat disease. Because technically, there is no such thing as dying of old age, everybody dies of something. But this is good news. Not all animals do this. Not all animals age this way. Some, particularly some cold-blooded animals, exhibit what's called negligible senescence. They don't lose their ability to reproduce over time, and their death rates don't necessarily increase with age. These animals basically stay at a certain level of fitness until something terrible happens to them, like a disease or predation or a really big, fast truck barreling down the road that they're about to cross. So, for instance, Galapagos tortoises have been known to live for 170 years, and lobsters can 
lived to be 140, and the oldest Quahog clam ever collected was about 405 years old. Frickin' Shakespeare was writing Hamlet when that clam was born. So that's totally unfair. Why do some animals get to start to die as soon as they reproduce, but others get a hall pass to near immortality? Scientists don't know for sure. They're trying to figure it out by studying senescence at a cellular level. And it turns out that our stupid cells have their own deaths programmed into them. Our somatic cells, the cells that aren't sperm or eggs, are constantly dividing and making copies of themselves. In fact, there are whole armies of cells being made in your body right now. In the 1960s, a young researcher named Leonard Hayflick was studying human fetal cells when he noticed that after a while, human cells just stopped dividing and then they died. He came to realize that they all quit dividing after about 50 divisions, which took around nine months. If he put healthy dividing cells into the freezer, the division would slow down and even stop, but when he warmed them back up, they'd remember exactly where they left off and start dividing again until they got to that magic number. It was in this way that Hayflick discovered that human cells have death programmed into them. The number of times a cell can divide is now called the Hayflick limit, and although it's 50 divisions for human fetal cells grown in a culture, the number for some animals is less and for others it's more. For instance, mice, which can live for two or three years, go through anywhere from 14 to 28 divisions. A Galapagos tortoise, on the other hand, has a Hayflick limit of about 100 25. So there may be a correlation between an animal's average hayflick limit and its lifespan, but as with everything in science, it is not this simple. Because even though we're always making more new duplicate cells, as we get older, that hayflick limit gets older. Studies of people in their 80s and 90s found that their cells only divided about 20 times. So since our cells have expiration dates, we in turn also have expiration dates. By now, good scientists are asking, okay, yes, there's a limit, but what causes the limit? Turns out the answer is uh, probably its chromosomes. A human cell quits dividing after it stops being able to completely replicate its telomeres, the little caps of non-coding DNA on the end of each chromosome that protect the genes from errors in copying. Telomeres are originally made with the help of the enzyme telomerase when we're just little zygotes. But after that, every time a cell divides, the telomeres on the chromosomes of a new cell are a tiny, tiny bit shorter than those in the parent cell. A cell reaches its Hayflick limit when the telomeres become so short that they can no longer protect the chromosomes and the cell becomes unviable. So, why don't biologists just fiddle around with our cells and add some telomerase to the mix so that the cells can keep dividing forever? Well, there's actually a kind of cell that already does that really well. Cancer cells. Yes, cancer cells can sometimes create their own telomerase so that they can replicate indefinitely without their chromosomes getting damaged, which is why they divide like crazy and become tumors. Because of that, nobody's super anxious to start injecting people with telomerase. And in fact, one theory is that programmed cell death evolved in order to keep our tissues from undergoing explosive cancerous growth. So, senescence, one thing that we have to grapple with as mere mortals, but another thing that's keeping us from playing basketball until we're 500 is our genes. Here, research into extending longevity has focused on a little nematode called C. elegans. These little worms are really good test subjects because their lifespan is only about 14 days and they only have about 20,000 genes, so scientists have been able to pinpoint the genes that are most likely in charge of aging. In 1993, Cynthia Kenyon, a biologist at the University of California in San Francisco, found that there was just one gene that was making these worms age. It's called DAF2, and when she messed around with that gene, basically mutated it so that it didn't work. 
Her worm started to live 28 days instead of just 14. Twice as long. If they did that for us, we would live to be like 160. And not only that, the worms were like spunky and vivacious all the way until they croaked. Kenyon also found another gene called DAF16 that has the opposite role. It keeps the worms young and healthy by regulating the production of antioxidants, germ-fighting proteins, and other things that fight off pathogens and the effects of stress. Because, you know, being a worm, Stressful. So what Kenyon found is that the aging gene worked by restricting the effects of the longevity gene. And when you damage the DAF2, DAF16 just keeps on doing its business, keeping the worms young. That's all well and good for the worms. I'm glad that they're having nice, long, healthy lives, but I'm not really too concerned about them. What about us? Well, the mammal scientists have indeed found two counterparts to that nematode aging gene. And in humans, a lot of research has focused on one gene in particular that creates a growth hormone called IGF-1. When scientists silence this gene in mice, there is less cell and organ damage caused by oxidation. Organs seem to be less susceptible to cancer and other age-related illnesses, extending the mice's lifespan by up to 33%. Now, why aren't we injecting George Martin with this stuff already? Well, for now, scientists aren't ready to start exploding everybody's genes just because it works in mice doesn't mean it's gonna work for people. But it does lead us to one more final cause of aging that scientists are investigating. Calories. That's right. It turns out that even though we need calories to live and work, the calories we take in are also stimulating the aging process. Scientists have known, actually since the 1940s, that lower caloric intake leads to longer lifespans in mice and other animals, but it wasn't until recently that they put their fingers on the possible cause, that calorie intake stimulates IGF-1. How that works isn't exactly clear. In fact, it's one of the bigger mysteries in the study of aging. But one theory is that since IGF-1's ultimate job is to direct food energy toward growth, if you take in fewer calories, your metabolism shifts gears from growing to simply maintaining existing cells and bolstering your resistance to stress and disease. So getting bigger and stronger becomes less important than just staying alive. But before you put yourself on an all celery and watercress diet, don't, because again, just because something increases the lifespan for a mouse doesn't mean it's going to have the same effect on you. Are you a mouse? If you're a mouse, then do that. Scientists have been doing calorie intake studies on animals more like us, monkeys for instance, but it's tough to do longevity studies on long-lived animals because they take freaking forever because they're like not dying. The longest running human longevity study has been going since 1921, which is pretty cool. Good job doing science back in the day when our subjects were about 10 years old. Some of the kids involved in that research are indeed still kicking. Good work, folks. But as you might expect, uh, many of the researchers have since died as well. One of the pitfalls of studying aging. So it might be a while before somebody's willing to tinker with your cell chemistry or genetic code to help you stay young and spunky forever. But in the meantime, you can take a look at your family. How old are they living to be? How long your grandparents and parents live probably accounts for about 20 to 30 percent of your chance of living past the ripe old age of 85. Otherwise, lifestyle choices like diet and exercise and whether or not you smoke play a pretty obvious role in longevity. Studies show that Seventh-day Adventists always great research subjects because they're an actual religion that encourages regular exercise, vegetarianism, and refraining from smoking and alcohol have an average lifespan of about 88 years. About eight years longer than the average U.S. citizen. So while our best and brightest keep researching senescence, genetics, and calorie intake, just don't smoke like Kate Moss, eat like a pig or drink like a fish, and you may live longer than those things at least. And one final thing that you can do to increase your lifespan, go to youtube.com slash scishow and subscribe. Proven! We've done the research. I promise. If you have any questions or ideas or thoughts for us, please leave them below in the comments or on Facebook or Twitter. And we'll see you next time.
Good afternoon, working like a woman. Um, I was really enjoying um, the segment about the brain. Actually, I just I I like the way that you and your husband work. It um, science and facts and strong subjective opinion. You know um, that they actually the the subject matters they just hit in a lot of so many different senses, and they're a break in the monotony of of what a lot of people post, and it just gives extra food for thought, you know, and growing, and it's just amazing. So um, there are a lot of scientific topics that I like to think about, and um, and those topics actually, if we really think about it, we become scientists ourselves. Do you agree? Hey, Jason. Thanks for that call in. I'm glad you're enjoying the you know, the segments that Z and I are posting and, you know, the interactions that we have. And we talk about these things, you know, anytime we see each other during the day, which is most of the day. Both of us enjoy exploring many different fields of science. So it's something wonderful that we have in common and, and you know, a, a passion of both of ours. I I do agree that even if you're not a trained scientist, if you're educating yourself, looking at the facts, following the research of trained scientists, and, you know, asking your own questions, certainly we can all be armchair scientists, and we should be. We should all understand our physical world and our physical bodies, because if we did, the world would be a much better place. Today I posted a bunch of segments on the effects of caloric restriction on your body, specifically aging. Now from what the studies are showing, in most species, the effects of caloric restriction result in about a 30% lifespan increase. But you have to restrict your calories to the point where you physically feel like you're starving. And then you've got this quality versus quantity of life. And do you really do you want to live to 80 and be healthy and strong and, and physically and sexually active and have, you know, be full of energy? Or do you want to live to 110 in near starvation mode? Now, of course, you should always maintain a good weight and a healthy weight, and you shouldn't be obese because that will shorten your lifespan. So what we're all waiting for is for science to come up with a way to have the same effects as this near-starvation diet without actually having to nearly starve yourself. And I'm sure it will happen. But then the question is, what happens to our population if we're all living 30% longer, 50% longer, you know, however much longer science can make us live, we're, gonna be, we're already overpopulated. What does that do to our population? And how do we reduce our population? Humanely. Working like a woman, this is Z over at Integrity Radio, and you have once again been featured 
on the latest segment titled Brains. <laughs> 